In the book of Habakkuk, God invites us to be flies on the wall, so to speak, in this incredibly important conversation going on between Habakkuk and the Lord. And I'm sure all of us have wanted to be in on some kind of conversation uh, similar to this, perhaps in another sphere of our lives, where there's somebody important who we look up to, who we need to know something from, but we may not want to go to them and find out what it is that we need to hear. So we, we listen in, and if, if it's if you're a child, maybe it's your parents and you're trying to hear what they have to say in the next room, or maybe you're trying to find out what your employer at work is talking about. Well, here, we are given a chance to listen in to this conversation between the prophet Habakkuk and the Lord God as Habakkuk brings his deepest heart's concerns and worries and fears to the Lord. And this passage we just heard read is the second part of that conversation. Habakkuk has already spoken and God has given him the first part of his answer. So it would be profitable to think back on what that conversation was like. So in the beginning of the book, when we looked at chapters 1 verses 1 through 12, we saw how that Habakkuk was wrestling with God. His fellow Israelites, the members of the kingdom of Judah, had been living in habitual sin. It's described as a time of violence and strife and contention. And Habakkuk is seeing this around him, that his people are not living in accordance with the law that God had given them. This God who many of the other minor prophets talk about as having brought them out of the land of Egypt to live according to his ways. Habakkuk looks around and he sees that that is not the case. He felt that the law was paralyzed, he says in chapter 1, verse 4. And he was distressed. He also brought specific questions to God. He groaned that, How long, Lord, will you look on while the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk had been praying for some time. Thus he says, How long will I call to you? He had been praying consistently and diligently. He didn't understand why he wasn't getting the answer that he sought. And his prayers had been marked not by a desire for personal financial gain or for the betterment or flourishing of his own life or his, even his community. It was about the holiness of God and about the righteousness of God being done around him. These were desires that were molded by the word of God. He, he knew the law. He knew his Bible, so to speak, and he cared about seeing it lived out. And we saw that God's reply to Habakkuk in verses 5 through 11 of the first chapter is shocking. Uh, This is happening near the end of the 7th century BC is the setting. We know that from verse 6 that says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians. Uh, uh, O. Palmer Robertson and several scholars with him suggest that around between the years 609 and 605 are likely for this, right about when the Babylonians were to take over the region. And God describes the Babylonians' approach to taking fortresses and storming into cities. He says that they pile up earth and they sweep on and go by guilty men, verse 11, whose own might is their God. This is what Habakkuk and the people of Judah had to look forward to coming in judgment. So as we come to our passage tonight, we see Habakkuk has questions about God's plan, and he brings them honestly and openly to God. Habakkuk has both confidence in God that he expresses at the outset, as well as confusion about what God is up to. So he expresses his confidence and confusion to God. 
And God responds with a promise and a pronouncement of woe. His promise is for Habakkuk and those who believe, and his pronouncement of woes are on all who reject God. So first we'll look at Habakkuk's, his confidence in God and his confusion, and then we'll look at God's reply, which is a promise and a pronouncement. So both are happening here, this confidence and the confusion. See, Habakkuk's prayer is multifaceted, and he opens everything that's on his heart to God. He doesn't hold back the confusion, but he also leads, importantly, with the confidence. This is something that we see is developing in his prayer throughout the book. In chapter one, he just blurts out, Lord, how long will I keep crying to you and you won't answer? He just opens up and says what's on his mind. But once we get to the end of chapter one, Habakkuk begins his prayer with an important announcement of confidence in his God. He says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One. And it's a, it's a choice attribute of God that Habakkuk chooses to focus on here. Because what he's just learned is that his nation may cease to exist. If these Babylonians have their way, they'll take, take it as they've taken other nations around them. So what better attribute of his God could Habakkuk choose to focus on than that he is from everlasting? He is saying with the psalmist in Psalm 90, Uh, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And it's as if he says, before I had breath, the Lord was, and after I have breath, the Lord still will be. So while I have breath, I will serve the Lord and trust in him. That's how he opens his prayer, with this confident expectation. But that confidence is not only grounded in God's eternity, he also focuses on God's judgment, says, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. And later on, that judgment takes deeper root, and we see in the end of the book, in chapter 3, verse 16, Habakkuk says, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. His, His thoughts on God's judgment and the certainty of justice coming to the wicked grows throughout the book. And his Comfort in that judgment is something similar that we have today in the Lord Jesus Christ after his coming, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts so beautifully when it says, uh, ask the question, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? The answer given is, in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and remove the whole curse for me. We know that the one who comes to judge has already judged us not guilty in Christ. So Habakkuk knew that God had ordained the the Babylonians for judgment. So this ordination of God was in his favor because God is, he says, my God, my Lord, my Holy One. Only, Only when God is your God are those truths a comfort. But that comfort is offered to all who come to him. Habakkuk head. So he takes comfort thirdly in God's sovereignty. It's both in God's, God's eternity and in God's judgment and in God's sovereignty. All of these things he piles up as he thinks of why does he have a reason for confidence. But like I said, that confidence doesn't last forever. It's a good start for his prayer, but as he moves on to think about what his God has just told him, he zeroes in on 
the righteous and the wicked, these two groups of people, and he sees that the wicked are about to win, it appears. He's, he's hitting on something that is rooted deeply in other portions of the scripture, this, this idea of why do the wicked perish, or why do the wicked prosper, rather, and why do the righteous perish? Uh, this is what he's confused about. Habakkuk's confusion is over these flip-flopped scales of the righteous and the wicked. And these are most clearly seen elsewhere in the Psalms, particularly in Psalm 1. When we consider Psalm 1, it shows us these two groups and how they are paradigmatic for all others who fall into those categories. It says that the righteous in Psalm 1-5 are known by God. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the ungodly, the psalm says, will perish. And sitting at the introduction of the Psalter as it does, that functions as a model to show us what happens to the righteous and the wicked and as a call to join with the righteous. We'll see further in Habakkuk who that group really is. But from the outset, that's what Habakkuk is wondering, is why are, these, why are the wicked prospering? Why are the righteous perishing? So he brings his concerns to God, both his confusions and his comforts. And God responds with just the exact truths that Habakkuk needs to hear to fit his questions. He gives his verdict on the wicked, the Lord does, but he also promises that the righteous will live by faith. He pronounces these five woes on the wicked, which are tailored to their specific sins, but he also looks to the righteous and he promises that they will live by faith. This is an important vision that the Lord is revealing to Habakkuk. He tells him, write it down. It's important not only for Habakkuk, but for future generations too. The Lord says, he, make it plain on tablets. Write it down. It's clear that it's not only for the prophet. And we know that it's important not only for him, but for us, because it's been quoted three times in the New Testament in the book of Romans and in Galatians and in the book of Hebrews. It's quoted there and Habakkuk is asking in the verse why there is a disparity between the fate of the righteous and the fate of the wicked. Uh, The gist of the Lord's answer is found in verse four. His soul, the soul of the wicked, is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this is at the heart of the passage And it's a rich passage loaded with truth for the mind and comfort for the soul. The righteous shall live, he says. It's a verse about salvation. In contrast to the Babylonians who will die and will not last in their wickedness, the righteous are told they will live in spite of all indications of the contrary. Uh, it It may have seemed to Habakkuk that they were going to perish, they were going to die, but... and. God gives him this promise that they will live. He likely would have thought of this life in immediate temporal salvation terms, and that certainly was in view. But we also need to think beyond the immediate salvation promised uh, to a fuller life that God is giving to Habakkuk and to all who trust in that promise. John Calvin, commenting on this verse, says, this principle ought ever to be remembered that whatever benefits the Lord confers on the faithful in this life are intended to confirm them in the hope of eternal inheritance. Hence, when Habakkuk promises life in the future to the faithful, he no doubt overleaps the boundaries of this world 
and sets before the faithful a better life than that which they have here. So the righteous are told that they will live and it's loaded with all of that content of the life promised. But they shall also live by faith. That's the means by which the life is to come. In contrast to the wicked who will perish in their unbelief and rebellion, the righteous will receive life through their faith. So what is this faith? Well, we find find in other uses of this passage later, as mentioned in the book of Hebrews, that, that faith is not always easy. Sometimes it involves walking through trials and suffering. Uh, The author of Hebrews quotes this verse in one of the warning passages in that book. And he says that, My righteous one will live by faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But then the encouragement is given, We are not of those who shrink back, but endure to the saving of their souls. Uh, He quotes it slightly differently than it's worded here, but uh, we learn from that usage of the verse that the faith of the righteous is a faith that endures through suffering. It's a faith that clings to God's promises in spite of what may come and in spite of apparent contradiction to the promise when suffering comes, the belief needs to be, I still yet will live and the Lord will still deliver me either in this life or in the one to come. After God gives those comforts to the prophet, he shifts then to the woes that he pronounces on the wicked. And David Baker, in commenting on those woes, tells us that Babylonia serves here as a proverbial kind of object lesson of those who overstep God's bounds. These, these woes, some of them track loosely with the Ten Commandments. Uh, the one that we read, we only read the first ones, verses six through eight, has its similarities to the commands not to steal. Uh, others could be likened to other commandments, but all of them have in common that they are practiced by those who are overstepping God's boundaries and rebelling against him. And, and they come in the form of a taunt. Verse six says, shall not all these take up their taunt against him? So the Lord is showing the futility of rejecting his ways while at the same time inviting the righteous to live by faith in his promises. Now, this juxtaposition of faith with judgment is not unique to this passage. We find that many places in Scripture where salvation comes, judgment is happening right alongside of it. And we can look ahead to that in the other use of Habakkuk 2.4 in the New Testament. If we think of Romans chapter 1, as Paul interprets the verse, he uses this verse to support his claim that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Right after he's, Paul is saying uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven, uh, from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's saying that we see God's righteousness in the gospel and in this faith that the righteous live by. Right after he's done with that salvation verse, he launches into his statement that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Salvation and judgment are pictured here side by side and, and we see that the salvation of the just is because God justifies them but God is still just in his dealing with the wicked. When God saves, he saves from and through judgment. Uh, from judgment because he is the justifier, through judgment because he is just. Uh, another example would serve for us in, in the example of Noah. Uh, when God saved Noah and his family, 
He carried them above the flood waters in an ark of salvation. And those same waters that floated them to safety brought judgment on those who did not listen to Noah's message. Uh, And we see it, of course, most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ in that the same death that brought our salvation brought judgment on our Lord. So these, these themes go hand in hand, picturing two sides of God's justice. So we've seen then God's promise to his people. We've seen his pronouncement of justice against his enemies. And we've seen Habakkuk's confidence in the Lord and his confusion at what God will do. But importantly sandwiched between these two is a lesson from how Habakkuk prays. Not just what he says, but the way that he goes about his prayer. And we can learn from this middle part what it is to wait on the Lord. In the middle of the passage, in verse 1, after Habakkuk has finished giving his confusion to God, he says, I will take my stand at the watch post, chapter 2, verse 1, and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. He follows his confused thoughts uh, by resolving to take his stand and listen for the Lord's answer. So it's perhaps something in his, God's first reply to him caused him to think more about how he would respond to God. Or perhaps reflecting on the holiness of God as he did in, in verse 12, led him to wait more patiently for the Lord's reply. Maybe he just, as he spent more time in prayer and prayed through his concerns, he's been led to wait and to plant himself and wait for the Lord's answer. Maybe that's happened to you. You've been praying, bringing your requests to God, bringing your problems, bringing your sorrows. And the more that you pray and the more you bear your true thoughts to God and you say, how long, Lord, will I keep bringing? I've been telling you what's wrong and I just am not seeing the answer. And it'll come sometimes as we meditate on those prayers that uh, the questions change their shape or new comforts slowly start to creep in and the fears don't immediately go away, but the landscape of your thought changes and start to see more clearly the Lord's goodness in the midst of challenge. That's what's happening to Habakkuk in the middle of this passage. And in the goodness of God, the Lord shows Habakkuk the wisdom of this way of praying and answers him in the answer that we've already seen and the promise that he gives. So, in the last analysis of the passage in the second exchange between Habakkuk and God, Habakkuk teaches us the all-sufficiency of our God. When injustice raged around him, he pled his case before the Lord. Uh, We know that the Lord hears our prayers, uh, in our heads anyways. We know that when we continue to cry out and call out to God, that, that the Lord hears, we know he hears everything. Habakkuk knew that too. He knew Psalm 139. He knew that God had searched him and known him and was acquainted with all of his ways. He knew, he knew the law. He knew the prophets. He knew the Psalms. But he needed to go through this wrestling and he needed to uh, bring his honest thoughts before God, before he could say at the end, as he will say in the next chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. I'll quietly wait for God's promises to come true and I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. May we too wait upon the Lord in the midst of challenging answers to prayer so that his answer may come in his time. Let's pray. Father, 
You are good, you are the everlasting God, and you are always good, Lord, always have been, and you always will be. And we praise you, Lord, for your, your patience, your condescending uh, to hear our prayers, stooping to listen to whatever we bring to you, Lord, inviting us in this passage by the example of Habakkuk to bring our honest complaints and confidence and uh, questions to you. Lord, may we bring them more quickly and more readily and wait on the answer to our prayers. Uh, In Christ, our mediator, we ask it and pray. Amen.